As for God, his way is perfect, it says in Psalm 1830, as we started and heard in this morning's call to worship. If the Lord is absolutely perfect, then his way is absolutely perfect as well. That means all that he says, all that he does, and all that he wills is without error. It is reliable then. And so the Lord God makes no mistakes. And everything he does is done with a purpose, eventually culminating in the perfect completion of his plan, the perfect achievement of his plan. That God is perfect and his ways are perfect has what I would say are both private and public implications. Privately or personally, those implications are very personal to us, to each of us, and they speak to our willingness then as individuals to be willing to trust the Lord no matter the circumstances that he may place in our lives. If the Lord has orchestrated all things in our lives and he is perfect, then we can trust that those things are perfect as well. That every moment, every encounter we have, whether suffering or satisfaction, whether experiencing a trial or triumph, each situation is fully endured because we trust that the Lord has orchestrated that according to his perfect plan. Never making a mistake, Always perfect means that these circumstances are part of his perfect design and are perfect in addressing everything God intends for us at that moment. The truth of Psalm 18.30, that the way of God is perfect, has not just those private implications, it has these public implications as well. Meaning that there's a public reality here. That everything that God has put into place, he has done so for a purpose. Not just in our lives as individuals, but in our lives as a body of Christ. And how we live those lives as a corporate body. The Lord has been intentional then in all that he does. Everything has been perfectly designed so that it will display his perfection. And so we can look at these various institutions given by the Lord, whether it be the government or society or church or or even the family, and recognize that all are given by the Lord. And their functions, when followed biblically, are perfect as well. Each is designed by a perfect God. And when his perfect word is followed, everything functions perfectly. If the Lord is perfect, then we can trust that his institutions are a product of that perfection as well. But the next line of Psalm 1830 says that the word of God is tried, meaning that the word of God is tested. But because it is a perfect word given by a perfect Lord, it is always proven true. But there will be those who will indeed try to test it. Since the Enlightenment, there has been this cultivation of an attitude about the questioning of God's word, where now it's not just accepted, but it's actually expected that we will question what he has written. It is encouraged both inside the church and outside the church to question the reliability of God's word. That is where we find ourselves in this morning's text. It has become one of the most challenged pieces of scripture, at least in our current era. And yet if God is perfect, then his word is perfect. And though it may be tested, it will always be proven reliable. That includes our passage this morning. 
And so I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2. If you're using the Bible in front of you, you can find today's text on page 932. And I want to bring to you a message that I've titled, just a continuation from last week, Appreciating a Woman's Value. Last week we looked at her, her character based on the instructions about dress, and this week I want to look at her capabilities. And so I ask you, those of you who are able to please stand for the reading of God's word. 1 Timothy chapter 2, and I'll begin reading in verse 8. I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Verse chapter 3. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil." Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. You may be seated. In Asia and Africa, there are birds known as weaver birds. They're known for that because these birds construct their nest by weaving things together. They will take things like broad leaves or strips of palm fronds or grasses or reeds. And then the male birds will select a suitable branch on a tree and then begin to construct by weaving these like ribbons together. They tie them to the branches using their beaks. And then they make knots and they hold everything together with their feet while they, they make those knots and weave it together. Within the species of weaver birds, there are ones known as baija and some known as grosbeak or gray-headed sociable and cassin weavers. Each bird does its own different style of weave and its own different style of nest. Some have an entry tube, some hang from branches, others might have chambers or antechambers. Others are simply just built like clusters, like small city fortresses. Why? Why are there so many different kinds of nest when it's really only one kind of bird? Why are all these assortments and variations in existence? One answer is simply because of different environments. But that's only a partial explanation. 
beneath all variety and all form and purpose is our Lord. Within the structure of order is God's exuberance and his delight in variety and creativity. And we see that in those weaver birds. God has shown himself that he is a God of order from the very beginning. Taking a shapeless and empty planet, what he has done is made earth into this intricate and highly complex arrangement of life. Newt Larson writes or explains, life is crowded with details. Life is crowded with purpose. In the order and complexity that God has designed, everything is in place to bring beauty and function, to trail its way back to God who is beyond definition. He goes on. Order should not be equated with monotony or convention. That God desires order is evidence of divine direction, purpose, and harmony. It is confirmation that he engineers every minute minute detail of life with interconnected meaning. The order and the process that the Lord has developed is being undermined by the subversion of God's design for both men and women. Think about what happens when something is used in a way that it should not be used. Think of a chair as an example. It was designed for sitting. But what happens if you decide you need to change a light bulb and you go to stand on that chair? It's going to put all your weight in the very center. And it's going to make that chair both unstable and and maybe weaker because it wasn't designed to handle your weight in that way. It may even collapse. This is what happens when... Something is used in a way that it was never intended to be used. The same is true in institutions that are designed by God. That he has designed them together with various parts. And when those parts try to operate in a way they weren't intended, it weakens the entire structure. We live in a culture that tries to pull men and women from their God-given designs. And in doing so... It disrupts God's perfect order and weakens the structures that he's put into place in society. The claims that Christianity and the godly principles by which the Lord instructs us is claimed to suppress the value of a woman. What we will see, though, is the opposite is actually true. Rather than suppress women... If we're following the Lord's revealed will in his word, it actually elevates women. Paul writes at a time when two cultures were predominant, at least in his region of the world at that time. There were the Jews, and for Jews, women were without rights, and they had no power. They were pretty much viewed as property. The other culture were the Greeks, and the Greeks often held a similar view. They were go so far as to confine women mostly to the home, not allowing her to go out to alone, and and in some cases, would even have her sleep in her own quarters or have her own living quarters altogether. But rightly understood, the teachings of Scripture, they do not minimize, but they maximize a woman's value. They don't look at her as a piece of property like those cultures did, but they look at her as being created into the image of God. At the close of Romans, the list of people that Paul commends includes a variety of women. Timothy's own mother is used as an example later on, the Timothy to whom this letter is being written. His own mother and grandmother 
are highlighted as godly women. The Old Testament highlights women who were instrumental at key points at critical junctures in the Lord's plan. And all of these show a woman's immense worth. There's a story that I think highlights that further, though that's not the primary focus. Acts chapter 16. There's a story of a slave girl who had the power of divination and her masters, her owners, basically used her to make a profit by taking her out and performing this divination. And what does Paul do? Exactly what we would expect him to do. He expels the spirit that's causing her to be able to have that divination. That actually angered her owners to the point that they brought Paul before a magistrate. And then Paul was imprisoned. But all Paul was doing was treating her like a human being. Treating her like he would treat anybody who was, at that time, demon-possessed. The result was he was placed in prison. I think that again shows the value of women. I wish I could remember which book I was reading recently that shared a bunch of stats. And what those stats were is showing recent research that shows that wherever Christianity had an influence, women were actually more highly regarded. They had better education, they had better health care, and they were just high, more highly regarded overall. When lived out in this design, according to the Lord, it elevates and appreciates a woman as she is made by God. What is important to realize is that diversity doesn't equal inequality. Neither does variety equal inferiority. Rather, the variation and the responsibilities for men and women are simply part of God's perfect design for them to complement one another, able to work in a unified unit. This should become clear as we look at verses 11 through 14 of 1 Timothy chapter 2. And we should learn that a woman is actually well gifted, fully capable in many ways, according to the Lord's work in her life. And in this way, we should walk away from this text appreciating the value of a woman, at least appreciating her more. Our appreciation begins by looking first at the charge, the charge of the text. Verse 11 gives us the only imperative that we find in this section. It's the only place that we find a command for women. And the command says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. In our human nature, our desire is to do the exact opposite of what we are told. When the Lord tells us not to do something, we want to do it. And when he tells us to do something, we don't want to do it. And so when we read, let a woman learn, our first reaction is to look for something more. We suggest that this isn't enough. And so we start looking beyond the text because we think that a woman should have more. And people begin then to creatively interpret this verse so that it doesn't sound so limiting. But in doing so, I would tell you that they actually delegitimize a woman. They actually undercut her value, failing to recognize how extraordinary she is. It doesn't lessen a woman's dignity here, it elevates it. These words, let a woman learn, are very provocative and radical for their time. And if lived out, those verse or this verse will revolutionize society. 
The command to learn is unique in this first century era. It's actually still unique in some cultures today. When these words were written, women were not given the opportunity to learn. Like I said, some places still don't allow it. I was reading a a report, I think about two weeks ago, about Afghanistan and different rules that they've now been implementing in the last year or two. And there's a number of them, I'm not going to go into them, but one of those is that now a woman cannot be educated after grade six. To prevent a woman from learning is contrary to God's will. She is to learn. And I, I don't think I'm out of line to say that because a church is supposed to enable a woman's obedience and anybody's obedience, the church that hinders her in that learning is doing something wrong. The church should enable her in learning. Here the women are given the command to learn. And it is for their good and for the glory of God. This has been part of God's perfect design for the church. I remember 1 Timothy 3.15. It informs us, it tells us the purpose of why Paul writes. As Paul says, I write these things that you may know how you ought to conduct yourselves or behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. In the institution of the church in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, identifies the church's purpose, that they all came together, everybody, all gathered together in order to learn Radically, women are permitted to gather too. They're sitting there amongst the people to learn as well. In the context of corporate worship, the only thing we see here is that they are to have an attitude of of being content with that role and that responsibility of learner. She is to be a disciple, having a hunger, not just for knowledge, but for understanding. And there is a difference Understanding is lived out in life. Knowledge is just head knowledge. As a learner then, she's in a position of great privilege, being able to be transformed by the work of God, which comes by the work of his word and the work of his spirit. Scripture frequently refers to people as clay and God as the potter. And as that potter, he molds the clay at his discretion and it becomes this beautiful work of art. When Judah rejects the Lord's work, Isaiah rebukes them. And he brings in the same analogy. Hear what he says. You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? And that the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me? Or that the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding? In rejecting what the Lord was doing... They were rejecting what the Lord was doing. They were rejecting his, his plan to mold them and shape them. They forewent the very means by which God was working. Jeremiah is another who brings this out in chapter 18. It says, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, Arise and go to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. And the vessel the potter was making of of clay was spoiled in his hands, and he reworked it into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to do. 
So first off, we have this potter who's making something, doesn't like it, destroys it, and reshapes it. And then it goes on. Then the word of the Lord came to me. O house of Israel, can I not do with you as a potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. This is God's role. He is the potter, using his teaching and, and her learning as a means to build a woman. 1 Timothy 2.11 then is a good thing because it means that God is allowed to take on the role of potter. And is at work then in the lives of women. And he's chosen the church as a means for orchestrating some of that work. There should be a tremendous satisfaction in the role as learner. I think of the show Downton Abbey, and I'm always amazed at how a lot of the people, specifically the servants, are always content in their role. Because what you hear today is, no, you need more. But they were content. Not that they didn't stop growing. But I think specifically of Mr. Mason, who was a farmer. At that time, that was a very lowly position. And yet he was very content in that position. At the same time, he never stopped learning and was always encouraging other people to learn and became instrumental and influential in their life by causing them to learn more. Learning is a good thing. It's a good role. This verse is a good thing because it speaks to God's work then for the good of women. But it's not just for their good, it's for his glory. John chapter 4, Jesus meets the Samaritan woman. And they have this interaction. And then Jesus begins to teach her and he says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. And so Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. This verse is speaking of worship, indicating that genuine worship begins with genuine knowledge. It calls upon somebody to know the truth and know the spirit of truth. And so by learning what a woman is doing is gaining understanding, which enables her to then worship God. When the Lord urges in his word women to learn, there are end consequences to that learning. It impacts her ability to worship and so the command to learn is helping her worship God, and greater understanding then enables greater worship. If verse 11 sets the charge to learn, I would tell you verse 12 identifies the boundaries of that charge. As we look at this text, we should see that verse 12 interprets verse 11. And look what they say. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So I want you to note, second, the conditions. The conditions. Like last week, there was a charge given. And that charge was women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel. Verse 9. 
And then that charge was defined by the conditions in the following verse. It said, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire. Here, a charge is once again given. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. And now the conditions define that charge. And those conditions may be defined by two statements, what we hear and what we don't hear. First, when we read this verse, what we hear is that a woman cannot teach. But is that what that verse says? Once again, context interprets for us. And what is being defined again is the structure and the order of the church of the corporate worship service. It doesn't prevent her from all teaching. Instead, what it does is just sets parameters by defining the appropriate conditions for her to teach. It does provide limits by noting that women are not to have authoritative teaching influence over men in the church. And we'll see that in a few weeks when we move on to chapter 3, that the burden of the teaching of the church falls on the men. But just a plain interpretation of this text reveals that women teaching in that way is outside of God's given design. That interpretation was reevaluated and discussed and even renewed in the Fourth Council of Carthage in AD 398. So this is a long-standing understanding of this. Though it's sometimes challenged, only recently have we faced greater challenges to this verse, though. And so focused on that one restriction, what gets ignored is that a woman actually has influence in other ways. The restriction here is not because a woman doesn't have the ability to teach. It's about the order God has established. If we take in the whole counsel of God's word, what we learn is that many women have a tremendous ability to teach. The most notable example I gave you earlier with Timothy from his mother and grandmother, Eunice and Lois, who grounded Timothy's faith in the word. It was their teaching that led him to Christ. By teaching her children, her family, and even other children, a woman has incredible influence. But her influence doesn't stop there. Consider what it says in Titus 2, 3 through 4. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, and it goes on. So those verses there open up a wide array of teaching opportunities. It gives her a ministry within a church for the glory of the Lord, and even identifies then how she participates in the Great Commission by training up other younger women. There's another area of consideration, though. Think about the story in Acts 18 of Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos. Beginning in verse 24, that story begins. Now a woman named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. Oh, sorry, now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of the God more accurately. 
The reaction of Priscilla and Aquila teaches us a couple of lessons. First, a woman's not inferior in knowledge and understanding. In fact, sometimes her wisdom outweighs that of a man. And any wise husband would first seek the wisdom of his wife and seek her insights before making major decisions. But Priscilla and Aquila show that how they exercise that wisdom too, by teaching in private counsel. What we hear is this text is a woman can't teach, but what we fail to realize is that's not the meaning at all. Actually, a woman has both the ability and the opportunity to teach. And believe it or not, if she teaches in those parameters, it's likely that she may have a more enduring influence in people's lives than those who would teach formally. Elders may stand and teach, and hopefully that bears fruit. But sometimes, like again in the case of Timothy, there are circumstances of a woman teaching somebody else in the way that's designed in Scripture. It creates a longer-lasting impact. But her ability to teach is dependent upon her ability to learn, which is really true for all of us. You can't teach what you don't know. So her ability to fulfill her God-given role is dependent upon her submission to her God-given role as outlined in verse 11. To deny verse 11 makes her unqualified to teach. So this first aspect of the condition is what we hear when we read this verse. What we hear is that a woman can't teach, and what we find is that's inaccurate and incomplete. But there's a second aspect of this. What we don't hear, silence. The second part of the verse says she's remaining quiet. That principle is reiterated elsewhere. 1 Corinthians 14, 34, it says, The women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission. That concept is known for eliciting two extreme views. On one side, there are those who simply say, this just means she needs to be respectful. She should have a meek spirit. And the reason they interpret it that way, what you'll find, is to justify a woman can teach then in any capacity, and they will say that as long as she has a humble spirit, she can take on any formal teaching roles. But there's no way to get that from what this verse says. But on the other side is another extreme view, and it's mostly in response to the 1990s and even more recently to these modernist views, and that view is saying that women can't speak at all. They should remain absolutely silent. But that can't be true either. Because back on July 30th, when we were looking at verse 9, we ended up in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which shows a woman being able to pray in the middle of the church. Men are to lead in prayer, but women were praying as well. So it can't mean that she remains silent because she participates. So what does it mean? Really what it means is her words are limited by her attitude towards leadership. She does not abandon her personal <coughs> thoughts of discernment, but her words are reflecting a submissive attitude. Her words should be well-planned to remain free from contention and confusion and controversy. And so her submission there to this verse is just a reflection of submission to God. This verse is not about equality or, or inequality. 
that issue of equality is manufactured to distract from the fact that in this text, equality is already just assumed. Having been made in God's image, Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2, having been made a new creation in Christ and brought together one male or female, Galatians chapter 6, women are already equal. This is merely about living out God's revealed will. As Robert Gromacki summarizes it, priority does not imply superiority. If God has ordained it, there's nothing we can do to make it better. A woman is valuable and her role is worthwhile because the Lord has made it so by establishing it so. The Lord has his reasons for his order. His willingness to reveal those reasons is really up to him. But I bring us back to where we started and that God is perfect and so are his ways. Therefore, whether or not the Lord chooses to reveal any of his ways to us, we still trust him because we know it's perfect and he's faithful in following through. And so we just trust that in his own counsel to himself, drawing on his complete and sufficient wisdom, he has designed this order without flaw or without faults. And so we should be comfortable with that. But the Lord does at least provide us some reasons here in verses 13 and 14. It says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. And from this, I want you to note the context, the context. Recounting the events of Genesis 1, 2, and 3, the Lord identifies two reasons for this system of living, and it comes down to the order of creation and the order of the fall. The first reason is quite simple. It's a matter of chronology. Adam was created before Eve. Elsewhere, we're reminded, neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That's not a text of servitude. That's not saying that she is at his service. What that is saying is that's recounting the reflection of the order of creation. Eve was not created first, and then Adam for her. Adam was created first, and then after him, Eve. And for what purpose? Genesis 2.18 says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Despite what some would say, this order of creation is, again, not about superiority or dominating one another. This is a matter of the Lord doing what is good for both man and women. And he does that by not leaving them alone. That also speaks of two things. First, it grounds God's command here in verse 11 in that order of creation. That command to not exercise authority over men is found based on the order in which they were created. But I think it does something else. It establishes the value of a woman. Because look at what has happened. At his creation, man is left to his own. He's there naming all things and doing God's work. And while it says repeatedly all of God's creation is good, he declares it day after day in Genesis 1. The Lord, all of a sudden, in verse 18 of chapter 2, declares that there's one piece that's not good. It is not good that man should be alone. All of a sudden, we have this good creation, and then the Lord says, but there's something not good. How does the Lord restore that goodness? By creating a woman. 
That action by itself speaks to the esteem that a woman merits. It affirms what was said a bit ago. Priority does not mean superiority. And so in this order of creation, God establishes order. But there's a second rationale, and that's the order of the fall. Eve fell at the temptation. Genesis 3 describes that event, and it makes it clear that the reason that she succumbed to Satan's solicitations was that she was deceived. Why was she even in the position of being deceived? I kind of alluded to that last week. Because Adam forsook his role as a leader. That truth means that Adam bears much more culpability for sin than Eve. And Adam is never excused for his role in sin. Romans chapter 5 makes it clear that his guilt is significant. But there's no need for Paul to write about that here because that's established elsewhere in Scripture. And the, the, pro, the purpose here, the emphasis of this passage, is to explain who a woman is and the why the Lord has established a role. And so that's the focus. A woman who embraces the role of learner will recognize a falsehood and not be deceived. The fall speaks of what happens when we ignore the roles God has given. If you look at this chart and just think about God's creation, the order of priority was God, Adam, Eve, and then the beast. But what happened at the fall? All of that got reversed. The beast, the serpent, led Eve, who then led Adam, who then were accountable to God. It went the wrong way. The order stipulated in our text, it's not punishment for the fall. It was part of the Lord's perfectly orchestrated plan and structure. In its design and its perfect, it was meant for good for God's people. But when it is ignored, the consequences are catastrophic, capable of bringing down God's creation. And that points us to the last point. I want you to note forth the connotations very quickly. The connotations. The most perfect place to be is in the revealed will of God. If we haven't figured that out by now, then what these verses speak to plainly is a reality that the Lord never does anything arbitrarily. All that he does is purposeful, intentionally orchestrated to accomplish the greatest good. While our human nature may cause us to question otherwise, what we should see here is that the Lord's plan, even in the specifics of this particular text, it's a means to accomplish that greatest good. The reality is that it does not diminish a woman's value. Again, it, it preserves it. Last week, we saw the specific instructions given about a woman's dress. And what the Lord was doing is protecting her from the judgments of a society. He's preserving her value as he created her. The same is true here. In society that had rejected a woman's value by denying her an education, the Lord's instructions actually elevate her and tell her to be a learner. The instructions of verses 9 through 15, they're, they're given for her welfare. They are guidelines at any present that any parent would give to their children. And that's all God the Father is doing to his children. What you should come away with here is the recognition that these standards are given not just for the welfare of women, but for the welfare of the church. 
William Hendrickson writes, let not a bird dwell underwater. Let no fish try to live on land. When God's creation tries to function in a way that he never intended, survival, if not impossible, is at least very laborious. That's certainly what happened in Ephesus. As they stepped outside of God's revealed will, God's intentions, it started to destroy the church. And all that Paul and Timothy are trying to do by being back in Ephesus in this letter is trying to restore that order and restore the church. And God's order here is for the welfare of women and for the welfare of church. From nothing, God created something. He created order where, where there existed only chaos before. And part of that perfect order was establishing priorities for men and women. Again, reiterating priority does not imply superiority. As the Lord has said in his own words, he created them in his likeness, male and female. And they are one in Christ. And yet he made them very distinctive. Those distinctions do not diminish her value. They create value. They establish it. It is by making women and men distinctive that the Lord has ordered his creation to be able to function. Relying upon one another, the Lord's perfect plan is fulfilled by the acceptance of our roles as he has perfectly designed them. In them, we actually find a woman is quite capable. The capabilities she has are boundless, crucial to raising up family, raising up even the church. So let us not diminish the value of a woman by thinking she is less than God created her. But neither should we diminish her value by trying to think she needs to be something more than God created her. She is perfect as she is designed by a perfect God. And because he is without fault, fully faithful, the Lord is reliable. He is trustworthy. And so his ordering of creation is without fault and trustworthy as well. What we need to answer is, do we trust the Lord enough to submit to his order of creation? Let's pray. Our Father God, indeed, you're a God of order, not a God of chaos, Lord. And we see that in the way you established creation. We see that in the way you established order in the church, Lord. And Father, though it may go against our nature in the flesh, Lord, I pray, Lord, that we would look upon these verses and recognize them not as restrictions, Lord, but as a means by which you're showing the worth of the people you've created, Lord, specifically women, Lord. Father, may we look upon them and may we see your glory revealed through that. And so, Father, may we come to you fully trusting in them, trusting in them because we trust you, knowing that indeed you're a perfect, reliable, faithful Lord. It is in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.